think I mixed up a name there. But you got it. God knows what he's what no, talking it. about. Um, voice override. Voice, not override. Over. Sorry about that. That's okay. God can hear through the the iPhone interruptions. So even when we can't, the Lord can. All right. What book are we studying? Galatians. Galatians. Anybody excited about that book so far? Yes. It just gets so good from here. We've only done the boring stuff. Galatians just escalates. And I'm, it's like, I don't know. I feel like from this point forward, it never reaches a lull. It just keeps getting more interesting and more applicable and then more aggressive and then more interesting and then more bold and then more ooh and then more ah. And just, I don't know. By the time we get to the end of the book, I just love the book of Galatians. We haven't made it far, but we will finish chapter one tonight. So I'm excited about that. That's I almost went a little further and then I made the outline and said, nope, that's that's plenty far enough. So let's recap what we can. And I don't have this on the outline, but y'all uh, see if you can help me out. What is the background for the book of Galatians? Let's start with the author. Who wrote who wrote Galatians? Paul. Paul. And what Paul? Apostle, Apostle Paul. Paul. He's very emphatic about that apostleship in this book. So let's let's hit that word. What does it mean for him to be an apostle? There you go. Yeah, I heard it from several different directions. He's sent with authority. Sent by whom? God. Jesus Christ. Jesus specifically. So therefore, what authority does he have that he's been sent with? All authority. All authority. That's good. I was going to go with Christ's authority. But all is equally true. Um, so he's been sent with the authority of Jesus Christ himself to be a missionary to the Gentiles. So he planted the church at Galatia. Uh, what church is? This is a region, not a single town. The region of churches there. He plants those churches, preaches the gospel. He leaves, and while he's gone, what happens in that area? People come in and add to the gospel. All right, Judaizers. Now, where do we get that name from? <laughs> Jews. You definitely hear the word Jew in there. Um, we made up this term not a biblical term it's just what we from a modern era look back and we made up a name for these people and we call them judaizers which means something to the effect of jew um you need to be one <laughs> you need to be one. Oh, i didn't even do that on purpose oh, oh that's that's formal that's happened forever now this is the this is the new way that it is you need to be one. That's beautiful. It really is. This is wonderful. Oh, wow. All right. So they're saying, you need to be a Jew. I can't even say it with a straight face. But specifically, what's the what are they? Who are they telling needs to be Jew? And what do they mean by saying that? Gentiles. So they're taking Gentiles. And what can you tell me about Gentiles? What's that word really mean in the Bible? Uncircumcised. So they're uncircumcised, but for a Jew to say uncircumcised, yeah. C-I-S-E-D. That's not right. Sorry. <laughs> Uncircumed. <laughs> Uncut. Uncut. Why didn't I do that to start with? Uncut. There we go. All right, so they're uncut, but to a Jew, being uncut means something much more precise. All right. All right. Not covenant. In other words, not God's people. 
You got to. I just can't spell tonight. If y'all focus on those details, you are going to miss the sermon, okay? All right, so uncut, not covenant. And if not covenant, then let's go a step further. What are they? Okay, unsaved. Let's go further than that. Pagan. There's, that's not two A's, is it? No, that's good. That's where the Bible's from. <laughs> heathen. Somebody said heathen. Um, what my mom used to call me. So let's just further though. They're they're Greek, theologically speaking, um, which implies a lot of things. So Paul is preaching to people who are very unlike the Jews that he's used to, that he grew up with, and he's preaching to them that they can get saved and remain uncut and not join the covenant of Moses specifically. Meaning they can, maybe they can't do parts of this pagan thing, but there's parts of that pagan thing they can do. Can you name any of them? They eat the meat. Bacon in particular, but any meat, he's going to go on to tell them they can, depending on the context, eat meat that's got a history, been offered as a sacrifice. They can do that. So these Judaizers come in, however, and this group right here had become Christian. And by Paul's previous definition, what did that mean? What had they done? Followed Christ. Followed Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone and through faith alone and Christ alone. It's his message. However, the Judaizers are saying what? No. Now you got to be, well, cut. cut. <laughs> now you got to be cut. Um, I'm going to say no meat. Think about it in their context. You go to the supermarket in Corinth, go to the supermarket in Galatia. How much of that meat the supermarket's been sacrificed to an idol? All of it. Unless you grow it yourself, uh, you're basically a vegetarian if you follow the Judaizers' way. We'll also see that they have to keep the Sabbaths. That is plural. Um, is that a thing? So the, the, law? the law in general, yes. Now, though, clearly we recognize that there's parts of the law everybody should obey. I mean, if we summarize the Old Testament law, what would we summarize it as? Well, in the New Testament, there's two commandments in particular used God, to summarize. Love, love God, love neighbor. Well, are they supposed to do those two? Well, they are supposed to do those two. What about the ten? Okay. All right, so, so there is a difficulty here in saying, well, they don't have to keep the law because we don't completely mean that. Because they do have to keep the law sort of, just not every part of the law. Why are there different parts? That's going to be one of the things that Galatians is going to work out. So there's a tension there, but this is what the Judaizers are doing. You have to do this or you are not saved. You're not a believer. You're not real. You're not actually God's people if this is going down. So when Paul writes the book of Galatians, um, who's he writing to specifically? The Christians. The Christians who are doing this, not the Judaizers. He's writing about the Judaizers to the Christians who were being Judaized. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, so, I look at that again. It made me laugh. So the Judaites that are wanting to add this stuff, 
Mm -hmm. They're not Christians because they want to add that stuff. Am I understanding that correctly? I mean, All right, to follow your question, are you asking me if, so these people who believed in Jesus <clears throat> start adding this stuff, Yes. are they Christians? Yes. Yeah. Are the Judaizers Christians? Yes. Question. Okay. Ooh, those are those are two. I think Paul would answer those questions differently. Here he would say, maybe let's see. Okay. Um, let's see how they respond to this okay. message. Okay. I mean, because you Christians make mistakes all the time. Oh, sure. You know, we and we even we can get prideful and arrogant and become mm -hmm. Pharisaical. You know, we've got a lot. Of, he pushes them to repent, and he even says, I, you know, I have better expectation of you you know he, he's making an assumption that he did not labor over them in vain however if they continued on that path well, they must not be all right so so here it's maybe maybe not here i think paul would be uh let them be accursed which is what we read last right, week right. in the previous paragraph and accursed is the biblical lingo for what <laughs> damned yeah. um that person can just go <coughs> because they're trying to lead these new Christians down a false path. Yes. So anything that distorts the gospel is an assault on Christ directly. So Paul can disagree with you about the eat and meat sacrifice or not. <coughs> if you're a Jew and that's just a big deal to you, you can't eat the meat, you can't eat the bacon. Don't do it. Paul would just back off on that. You change the gospel, however, Paul's not backing down. He's going to accurse you and say, no, you're anathema to me. And anathema is the ancient way of saying accursed dead to me you're we we discard this discount that not part of us so, does that answer your question yeah okay and we'll answer that question a lot more precisely as we work through the book of galatians because he really kind of is addressing that exact question all right so that's our context paul's writing to combat the church because they have in large part kind of yielded to these judaizers they're starting to add this the simple way of saying it they're adding works to their salvation. But salvation is supposed to be by grace, not works. So he's trying to write back to correct them. So that's, that's where we're at. So we've done the first 10 verses, and now we're going to dive in verse 11. Well, let's fill in the blanks at the top, I guess. I got carried away in the introduction there. So definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of, you can probably guess, Christ. salvation accomplished by Christ through his death and resurrection. We gave a much more elaborate definition last week. Um, for the sake of time, we won't redo that every week, but uh, we will kind of hit the basics of it every time. So next, the gospel, this is very important. The gospel is about Christ. This is commonly going to come up as a theme. It's not technically speaking our primary theme for tonight, um, but it will come up constantly in the book. The gospel is not, and we have a tendency in America to put in a lot of blanks here, other than Christ. Um, the gospel is a healthy marriage. The gospel is better career. The gospel is better health. And these are just versions of the prosperity gospel. But it could be, and in some cultures, if you come from more of a pagan culture, the gospel may be power, you know, like spiritual power. Like if you think of the the guy who saw Peter performing the miracles and he comes over with his money and says, hey, I'll pay you for that. What, what do I need to do to be able to do this? For him, the gospel was this means of power. None of those are the right answer. You can fill in the blank with anything. And if it's not Christ, you've got the wrong gospel. 
So the gospel is about Christ. Third, the gospel is accomplished by Christ. Christ, still by Christ. The gospel is accomplished by Christ. So who's doing the dying on the cross? Jesus. Jesus is. Who's doing the raising from the dead? Jesus. Who's applying the work of redemption in you? Jesus. Technically the Holy <coughs> Spirit, but, but they are working together. Um, so uh, we can be a little broad in our Trinitarian usage here. But the gospel is accomplished by Christ. And the number four, before we start on the verses, um, the gospel is the outworking of the grace of Christ. Christ. Very good. Christ was all three of those books. It's all about Christ. It's his grace. In fact, that's what he says back in verse six. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. This is his grace being applied. So if at any point it quits being about Christ, isn't accomplished by Christ, and isn't based on his grace, we have distorted the gospel. You see how I'm putting those three things together? So the Judaizers, how are they making it not about Christ? Adding, adding those. Well, they're making it about the law and good works. They're making it about Moses. They're making it about their Jewishness. That's not Christ. Different thing. All right, how are they making it not accomplished by Christ? Because it's the actions of... Now it is, you mark yourself off by what you do. You designate yourself as God's people by your outward actions. That's not accomplished by Christ. And then, of course, the last one should be easy by this point. How, is, how are the Judaizers um, neglecting grace? Are they? Are they? Yeah, well, how are they? I'm assuming they are. So how, how are they? They're adding more to it. You add anything, period. You add anything, it's not grace anymore. It's, it's that simple. All right, so that's what's going to happen. So let's dive in. So we're in verse 11. So for, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that we, sorry, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll unpack a few things. It's not saying that he never got anything from anybody. Because we know he got something immediately. He, he, was, he was on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus, had a little conversation with Jesus. Then he goes to Damascus, and he has to wait for a guy to come talk to him. What guy is that? Ananias, the good Ananias, not the one who lies and dies. That one's dead already. So Ananias comes, and, and he talks to Paul. Paul spends time with another famous biblical character shortly after that. Begins with the B, Barnabas. So he's not saying no interaction. That, that's not what he means. We're going to find out very quickly he's comparing himself to the apostles. Now, what made the apostles special in the early church? Their authority came from Christ. They were with Christ while he was here and their authority came from him. They were in a unique category. So he's saying here, I didn't get it from them. Not that he didn't hear people say it. We know from 1 Corinthians, and Gene asked me about this a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 15, he gives that quote from the gospel. He says, I gave to you what I first received. And he is in that context talking about from the church. He got this statement very early and that was the basic elements of the gospel. But in this context, he's talking about something much bigger and more formal and that is he received it through a revelation of jesus christ so first blank here the gospel came from christ directly 
even for the Apostle Paul, as opposed to how do, how do we get the gospel? Through the Bible, or in other words, through Holy Spirit. Those aren't bad answers. Y'all just aren't reading my mind. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I feel like I ask a question and somebody gives a really good answer. And I'm like, that's great. That's not where I'm going. But <laughs> okay, indirectly. Indirectly in what sense? So what are we... I heard Ted say the Bible, but I want a slightly different answer than that, even though that's not wrong. Messengers. Messengers? Well, what would be the first messengers? Apostles. Okay, through the apostles. I was just aiming for, aiming for the apostles. So you can think about it like this. So here's here's Jesus, <coughs> and he's giving the gospel to the apostles who put it in the Word, and then we could put extra steps there, but then it comes to us. Come through preaching, come through an evangelist, a missionary, a pastor, a parent, a, you know, a lot of things. So we see that basic pattern. So what I'm saying here and emphasizing is that where does Paul go on this chart? He's right here. Even though we have a temporal problem, Paul doesn't get on board until Jesus has done what? Resurrected. So he's, he died, and then he rose, and then he rose again. The second rose in here, of course, is the, the ascension. So Jesus goes, I guess we could do it like there's a down, a back up, and then a further up. But I guess if we're going to be technical, he, he came. There we go. Complete, complete the analogy. Incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension. Paul comes after all of this. So technically speaking, when Paul gets saved, or right up to the moment Paul was getting saved, where is Jesus? Technically, now I recognize, difficult question. Because where is Jesus can be answered in two ways. In one sense, where is Jesus? Everywhere. Everywhere. But Jesus is not just God. He's also... The right hand of God. Um, He's also human. And the flesh of Jesus is not everywhere. It's at the right hand of the Father. And so when Paul comes, it's like he came too late. But what Paul is saying is, I didn't get it next in sequence. I didn't get it from the apostles. I didn't get it from a man at all. He got it, according to that verse, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's fill in this next blank, and then we'll go a little further with that word revelation. So it says, for Paul, it was extremely important that the gospel was not crafted by man. Not crafted by man. Now, what would, if the gospel was crafted by man, would that by default mean it wasn't true? Not necessarily. It wouldn't be as trustworthy. But I mean, that human beings come up with correct things? Sometimes. Um, I mean, we didn't get the design of the automobile from direct revelation. Right? We figured that out. Now, we got the proper way to roast meat by direct revelation. That's literally in the Old Testament. Um, you know, you just salt it, roast it over fire, not boiled. You know, that's direct revelation. Um, but there's so many things in life that are not direct revelation. We don't have direct revelation about instruments 
for many things. So just because it came from man doesn't necessarily mean it's not useful. doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But what does it mean if it comes from man? It's not absolute. Ooh, okay, two different ways of saying the same thing. It's not absolute. It can change. Because who has the authority to change it then? The creator, which is man. In that case, people would. Yeah, people would have the authority to change it. This is why it's a big deal to Paul. So if the gospel came from men, men would have authority to change it, which is fundamentally the opposite of what Paul is saying here. All right, so let's get into that word. So, but I received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to call this little arrow. That's a revelation arrow. Now, when we hear the word revelation, in most settings, what do we think of first? End times, sure, sure. It's almost synonymous, right? End times. And furthermore, to reinforce that, what's the name of the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Revelation. No S, but revelation. Um, Anybody know the Greek word for that? It's actually an English word, too. It's apocalypse. So apocalypse. When you hear the word apocalypse, by default, immediately, what do you think of? War. <laughs> war. To, end of the world. Destruction. Everything is over. In the Greek, the word apocalypse does not in any sense, in any way, even remotely mean end of the world. At all. It, it just does not mean that. Period. And it's really funny. Though, we Apocalypse is a bad word in our culture. It's a terrible word. But the, the, it does not mean apocalypse. So apocalypse does not mean apocalypse. <laughs> okay? At all. Even remotely. It means <coughs> revelation. And revelation is just a noun version of a verb. The verb is to reveal. <coughs> That's all it is. So if something has been revealed... And we use this word that way occasionally. Oh, I've had a revelation today. What do we mean when we say that? Learn something. I've discovered something. Well, and we call it a revelation then because we assume it has a source. If something's been revealed, it was revealed by something. So revelation is the key biblical word that we use, and we use this very much in theology as well, to denote anything God gives us informationally. I mean, if he tells us something, so if he told a prophet something, that was revelation. If he wrote the Bible through inspiring prophets, that is revelation. Now, this comes in two forms, and this is slightly off topic, but it's very useful for you to know. So let's get a little bit nerdy for a moment, which happens occasionally at our church. All right, so I don't remember if I've done this analogy with y'all in a while. See if you remember or not. If everything that exists can be put into two categories, what are the two categories? God and everything else. <laughs> Jumped right to it. Okay. One category is God. Everything else is creation. creation. If it exists, it's one of those things. There, there's no in-between. So it's either God or it's something he made if it exists. All right. So revelation, then, is our ability... To know him. Revelation is how it happens. There's two primary ways this is done. Number one, what we might call the broader category, is we know something about God 
by looking at this circle. Does that make sense? Well, what can we learn about God by looking at this circle? He exists for one so, so the Bible would say very dogmatically, <coughs> Romans chapter 1, you look at the circle, you should know two things. There's two specific invisible attributes. You're so close. You're right on the edge. Anybody know? One of them is eternal. Eternal power and Y'all in the right spot. That's okay. Divine nature. Actually, to word that in a much less, you know, theologically sounding way, uh, you should know that there's two circles. That's what that means. Eternal power to do what? To create. Something other than creation created creation. Well, and that something, if it's got the power to create must have a different nature than us. So whatever created creation must not be creation. But you know, there's two circles. Now we could go further than that. You get into systematic theology, you'll you'll find that people pretty they'll push the limits on how far you go. Some would even argue that you can find the doctrine of the Trinity in creation. I've read those arguments, I'm not there. <laughs> you know, I can't make that argument. But I get it, you know, there's there's things I know which one of my kids made my Father's Day card, you know, just because I know them and I see it in their work. But see, if I didn't already know my kids, I don't know if I would know. And that's, that's the problem with, with the analogy. All right, so that's, you know what that kind of revelation is called by looking at creation? Anybody know the formal term? General. It's general revelation. That's your next point. Or, well, maybe not the next. Uh, revelation is the theological term for how God speaks to people. And general revelation... We learn about God from creation. But Paul is very adamant. That's not how he got the gospel. Now, there's a modern version of getting the gospel from creation. Now, the Enlightenment version of getting the gospel from creation was called deism. Do you know what deism is? is God, some, God is in everything. So, well, that's a... That's, there's pantheism, panentheism. Deism is a belief that, well, God made this, but he has nothing to do with this. Okay. Um, but the idea is that God's not in the world directly revealing anything. There's no such So for deism, there's no such thing as special revelation. In other words, we can figure it all out on our own. So deism is the same thing in today's world as naturalism or atheism. So... It's really interesting. So atheism and deism are the same belief set in different ages of history. Same doctrinal system. Paul is basically saying here, opposite. Not this. We did not get it from creation. Where did he get it? Directly from God. Now instead of general, what do you think the word is going to be? Special. Special. Special revelation. Oh, it's personal. Do what? I like personal. Personal? personal? It's okay. I wouldn't say special. Hey, personal would be fine. In fact, Correct. John Frame, famous theologian, would probably like your word better. I'm going to go with special, though. It's historically more accepted. But personal is equally good. Because God's a personal God, and he, he reveals it on purpose. 
to people. So special revelation. So in special revelation, God speaks to us through his inspired word. Now we would say that all of that special revelation is contained in scripture. That's an argument for another day, but... So based on Romans 1, we would say everyone at least subconsciously does, but the whole argument there is that they have suppressed it. And that's why they worship creation rather than creator. So the biblical worldview would be, if you believe in polytheism, then you only believe in one circle. We have this misbelief that polytheism would be well, multiple other God circles. That's, that's not true, though. Polytheism, you always worship aspects of creation. So Zeus then becomes the god of lightning or the god of some... There's always a naturalistic thing that that god represents. So it's... In fact, polytheism is the ancient version of what is now naturalism or atheism. So, you know, current science as a naturalist has more in common with Greek mythology than it does with reality. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting aggressive. I should calm down. Okay, that's just how that works. All right, let's move on. All right, so the power of Christ's gospel. All right, so we've done what, two verses? <laughs> okay, we're making good time. <laughs> Verse 13. All right, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, who's talking? Paul, his former life in Judaism of course, is a big deal. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So let's fill in this next one quickly. So Paul was a highly trained Pharisee, having studied under um, Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, however you want to say his name. We know that directly. He quotes that in the verses there, Acts 22, 3. He names this guy. And we should make a side note that if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, that dude would have been the most famous Pharisee who ever lived. But then Paul became so famous that no one knows this guy exists. But that dude was a big deal, and Paul was his underling. So Paul was like, if you think about it like this, the second most Pharisee of all the Pharisees there ever were. And I think he's kind of arguing that he was better than the teacher. I don't think he outright said that, but I do think he th- thought that. You know, what I'm, you know what I mean? So this is, this is Paul. So Paul was zealous for the traditions, and that lingo is used in the first century to denote the Old Testament character um, Phenos, spelled several different ways, depending on your translation. I've also heard it called Phineas is, is common. Um, Phenos is probably more Hebrew. Anybody know who this guy is in the Old Testament? Oh, let's hear it then. <laughs> Timmy's like, no, 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 definitely you. <laughs> got the right person yes so like when the the hebrew people is in numbers um when they're uh intermarrying with these midianites uh Phinehas is the guy who gets all zealous for the lord a little bit of awkward sore we got children in the room walks into the tent 
where a symbol of marriage is taking place, gets both of them with the same spear. And that was in the Pharisee world. This guy is the ideal human being. And the term for that was zealous. So if you hear the word zealous in first century Judaism, they're all thinking of phenos. I want to be phenos. It's the Jewish version of almost jihad. In fact, they create a group of terror cells, um, which is ultimately what leads to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Like there, there's some legit phenos attitude going on in that world. So Paul is coming out of that tradition. What's he doing with the church? Phenos. He's phenosing he's the church. Um, slightly different context, but he is seeing them put to death when possible. Not in Roman culture, that wasn't always an option for him, but if any way he could suppress and destroy what was happening in the gospel and the church, he was doing it. So, all right, let's keep going. Um, verse, where believe we 15? But when he who had set me apart, so who's he who had set me apart? God. God. But when God who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Ah, several super interesting things here. Next blanks. Christ planned to save Paul and appoint him to be a Gentile missionary before he was born. Now that's not the only verse of scripture we have that talks this way, but that's incredible. God had this plan down to the day, the location, how this was going to happen, who would be involved. Think about all the details involved in sovereignly working that out. I mean, it's insane just to think about one single event. And yet Paul is having all this brought together in his life from so many different angles and really all people in his narrative involved in this plan, whether they know it or not, God is working this out to save Paul specifically to redeem him to be a missionary for the Gentiles. Now, follow the wording here. How does he call himself being saved? Because he doesn't use the word saved at all in that narrative. What word does he use instead? Set apart. All right, set apart is one. I heard the other one too. Somebody said called. called. There's one more. Grace. It's in verse 16. The revealing of the Son. That's the one I want to camp out on. So we, we, we understand called. I think for the most part we understand the idea of set apart. That one's more common in our lingo. But this one revealed is not as common. So Paul was saved by having Christ revealed to him. Now Paul uses this. You can study in Galatians back up a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how Paul envisions this. So 4.4. So in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So in that passage, what has Satan done to unbelievers? Blinded them so they can't see what specifically? Christ, the glory of Christ. So what happens though, if you jump down to verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, and that's a reference to what event? That's creation. So God can say, Let there be light. And from darkness, we get light. That same God has shown in our hearts giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Christ. So in that lingo, what is the moment of salvation? It's God shining his light of Jesus into you. How's Paul word in Galatians? God revealed his son to me. Now look at the beautiful imagery of that. We sing songs about I saw the light, I saw the light, but Paul's on the road and he literally sees a light. And that light symbolically represents the light of the gospel, which is a picture of what every salvation that has ever taken place really is. God says, let there be light in your heart. The light of the gospel shines in and you see it's Christ being revealed to you. So this is what Paul's thinking of when he talks about the power of the gospel. So Paul was saved by having Christ revealed to him. And then all men are saved by Christ being revealed in their hearts. You follow what I'm saying? The power of the gospel opens our hearts to believe. The power of the gospel opens our hearts to believe. All right, anybody missing the blank? We're now going to the unity of the gospel. Yeah, on the second one, Paul was zealous for traditions. Lingo used in the first century to denote Old Testament. Old Testament character, Benhas. Okay. Yes. All right. A few more verses. We'll pick up the pace now. Verse 17. So remember, he said he didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So obviously, oh, I erased that part. So he's not going back to Peter and, and uh, the original 12 to find out from them. Instead, it says he went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So how long did it take Paul to go back from Damascus to Jerusalem where he started? It's three years. Now we know that three years involved him going to Arabia and then back to Damascus. Now, we don't exactly know how long he was in either place. Historically, it's common to say he spent three years in Arabia. I mean, really, it could have been a year and a half and then back a year and a half in Damascus. You can see how the way it's worded. But what's he doing in Arabia during that time? Can, can you see it in the passage? He's being discipled by God. He's being discipled. Remember how he started the paragraph? I didn't get this from men. I got this from Jesus Christ as direct revelation. Here's how it went down. You know my former life. I got persecuted, then God set me apart. I didn't immediately go consult anybody. Instead, I went and hung out with Jesus. That's what he's saying here. So where that comes from. He's during that time having the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of debate about exactly what that looked like, but the reality is it doesn't matter. He's getting it from direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Is he there in the flesh? I like to think probably. Um, he showed up to save him in the flesh, but it doesn't say that. So I can admit that we don't know for sure it was in person, face to face. It may have been through the spirit and his reading of the word, but we know it was direct. Whatever it was, God is working with him directly one-on-one. -on -one. So at conversion, let's see, we fill that in. Paul spent time in Arabia. Think of it as his Mount Sinai, like Moses, receiving the gospel by revelation. So he's receiving the gospel by revelation. That's why this paragraph exists. It's to tell us he didn't get the gospel from the other apostles, but instead got it from Jesus. Now, this is going to be significant next week, but I'm going to just give you the basic idea. Well, let's finish reading, and then I'll give you the basic idea. Where would we leave off? Um, 18? So then after three years... I went up, up to Jerusalem, which on a map is down, but it's up 
because it's it's uh, topographically up from where he was in Damascus. So he goes up to Jerusalem um, to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Who's Cephas? Peter. That's Peter. So he remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now there's so much we can go into here. I don't have enough time. But was James, the Lord's brother, an apostle sent by Jesus back in the original 12? No. What about Peter, James, and John? Different James. Different James. It's very interesting. Paul calls him an apostle here. Writes a book later. So it's very important um, that we recognize that he was counted, for whatever reason, he's counted among the apostles. But Paul's saying, I saw Cephas, I didn't see anybody else except for James. (laughs) That's how, how he words it, but that's what he says. And then verse 20. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. What's he saying there? God, he's swearing technically. I swear before God, I, I'm not lying right now. I did, I did not hang out. In other words, why, what's he trying to emphasize? This is unbelievable. Didn't come from human origin. They didn't get it from them. He did not get this gospel from those guys. That's fascinating that that's his point, because they got it from Jesus. So it seems like that would be enough for it to be trustworthy. What we're going to find out, however, is that part of Paul's argument is that we've got this gospel from two separate places. One from the original 12, directly from Jesus, and then Paul, temporally distinct, different location, directly from Jesus. Now, this is a good test case scenario, because what could you do with these two gospels? Bring them together and compare them. Now, that's next week's message when we get to chapter 2, but that's exactly where that's going to go. So afterwards, Paul um, visited Peter in Jerusalem, but none of the other apostles. Paul had been preaching the gospel for years before he ever spent significant time with the other apostles, yet it would turn out that they were preaching the same message. We'll get that in chapter 2 next time, but that's the whole point of that scenario. So he, he basically goes a large portion of his ministry without fact-checking his gospel with the other guys. But then when he does, perfectly lined up. That's the whole point. And that's where he's going to go with next week's message. All right, then let's see. The fruit of the gospel. Let's finish up. So verse 21. Uh, Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person among the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Beautiful application here. The primary witness of Paul's life was his transformation from persecutor to preacher. That's just amazing. It was spreading everyone in the church. They knew who he was before he got there. Oh, he's that guy who turned around. You know, now not obviously not all conversion stories are that dramatic. But I mean, Paul's is Paul's is as dramatic as it could possibly be. I mean, he's literally leading the offense against Christianity and then leading the offense of Christianity. And it's just a beautiful transformation. And I love how that last verse goes. They glorified God because of me. God is always glorified by gospel transformation and the lives of even us ordinary people. And not to be the Apostle Paul. All life transformation by the gospel is glorifying to God. 
Now, that's going to lead into some of our salvation questions that come up later. The gospel does transforming work, which is going to lead to that constant question of if there's no transforming work, you have to ask yourself, has the gospel happened here? And how we answer that question is going to be tricky because we can answer that question improperly and end up with a works-based salvation again. If we end up, if we answer correctly, we still end up with people who are saved doing works, but for a very different reason. It's their joy and delight in Christ that's going to motivate them. That's going to be fundamental for how we go forward. So, are there any questions? We, we did good. Three more minutes. All right, Vince. Um, back to the general and special revelation. Okay. If it were direct revelation, then that would make you an apostle. Did I understand that correct? I mean, because that's what Paul got, direct revelation. So, our lingo for apostle is going to be New Testament forward. Uh-huh. Yes, that would be... That would make you an apostle. In the Old Testament, we just call that category of prophet. Okay. Um, but in the New Testament, we call those apostles. Does that answer the question? Yep. Okay. All right. Any other what questions? I, say, I didn't get direct revelation. You did not get direct <laughs> revelation. Correct. None of us do. I mean, we, this is plenty direct enough. Yeah. Right here. This is the word of the apostles contained. So you're saying people who call themselves apostles today are heretics. <laughs> I'm stepping one step short of saying that, and I would say they might be. The word cessationist gets thrown around well, in certain circles, and it kind of causes a conflict. So the problem with that whole conversation is people are using the same words and having arguments when they're using the words differently. And so technically speaking, if you don't believe there are apostles today, you are a flavor of cessationist. And some people who are cessationists say they're not because they believe someone may still have a gift of healing, or they may speak in tongues, and I would maybe not completely agree with everything they'd say, but technically if the apostles are gone, you're a cessationist. The apostles are over. There's no more direct revelation. Um, But then people use that word kind of loosely. But some people use the word apostle and don't even know it means that. And so, like, you could call yourself something dumb. That doesn't mean you're a heretic. It just means you're uneducated. Yes, yes. So, and those aren't the same. Yes. If someone's claiming to get special revelation, by default, I lump them into their tick category. Because essentially, if, if somebody is saying that they have something with authority, then, then it, like we would essentially, we could add to the canon of yeah. scripture. If there was really, a, exactly, if there was really an apostle among us, if he wrote a book, we would have to add it to the binding. But that, that book is called, there's a reason revelations last. And then at the very end, it says, don't add to the book or receive all the curses of the book. That's not an accident that that got put there. That is very, very purposeful. All right. 30 more seconds. (laughs) We're going to take the whole time. Tom, next week. (laughs) Let me give a short answer to that because it is time. Um, Here's how I would deal with that. I've heard lots of interesting stories like that. Um, And I would be very hesitant to say God couldn't directly 
reveal the gospel. However, I think we have New Testament ground where something like that could have easily taken place with Cornelius. He's this God-fearer who kind of, in a sense, he's like, he's like begging to be saved, but he's got no gospel to believe in. And God literally sends an angel to him. And instead of giving him the gospel, the angel tells him to go get Peter, who has to bring him the gospel. And so, like, God can clearly send an angel to an unbeliever. But even in that one case we do have in the Bible, he didn't send the gospel that way. He still used us to do it. Yeah, yeah. So so I would say, let's say God does give a dream, a vision to somebody. I, I'm not against that happening. Um, I still think it would be validated and become real because a, a missionary showed up and was preaching the gospel, and the guy's like, oh, 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 let's talk about that. I had a dream. But to me, that's still gospel going through man. God, I mean, God has to do a work in the heart on his end for you to get saved. So like, obviously, he's moving first, regardless of what happens to you. But um, that's a different conversation. So that's a short answer, but I, you know, I get the nuance and complications of it. All right, well, I'm going to pray before anybody else opens a candle like this. <laughs> God, we thank you for tonight. I pray you bless our study. Uh, as we get further in Galatians, I pray that it would give us encouragement. Um, that would provoke us into faithfulness and <coughs> spur us by the power of grace applied to our hearts. pray that you would help us to trust Christ alone for salvation. We wouldn't add works, but that in our response to grace, we would be wholly transformed um, in our behavior and our desires and wants. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.